0: The Westminster Catechism begins with this question and answer, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the gospel that we've sung this morning, the gospel that I am about to preach to you, and the gospel that we will sing at the end of this service is about the work of God in Christ To enable us to glorify God and to enjoy Him. But, we live east of Eden. And there are a thousand things in your life that can destroy your ability to enjoy God. And the work that He has done in Christ to redeem you and save you and reconcile you to Himself And as if to accentuate that point, we woke up this morning and it's storming outside. It's pouring on Easter. And I know for a fact that there are many of you here that are having trouble enjoying God. Some of you because you don't know Him, others of you because you're suffering. Physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. Others, you come in with a load of worries and burdens that are pressed down upon your shoulders and you don't know what to do with them. And you're having trouble singing about things that happened 2,000 years ago when you've got stuff that you've got to attend to this afternoon. So I'd like to pray for us as we begin. Because I want to glorify God and I want to enjoy Him forever. And I want us to have the joy this Easter morning, even even in the midst of storms, both literal and metaphorical. I want us to be able to sing the final song and have our hearts soar because of what Jesus has done for us. So let's bow together as we open up the word our God and our father we begin this morning by acknowledging that this word is your word it is true it is infallible it is inerrant these are the words of life they speak truthfully to our condition they speak hopefully to the remedy for our condition and they are given for our joy and so i pray now for me and for many here who are struggling to enjoy jesus and to treasure him above all else on this sunday morning i pray That you would open our eyes to see his glory. The glory of the second Adam who came to bring us home to God. And I pray that you would open our hearts and increase by your Holy Spirit our capacities. To sense the everlasting eternal magnitude of these things that we are about to talk about. God, rescue us This morning, from the storms that we feel pressing in upon us, from the worries, from the concerns, from the sins that have us in bondage, from the circumstances of life that press in on every side, whatever we need and whatever it takes so that at the end of this service we can... Sing for joy about the blood of Jesus that speaks for me and takes away my shame and my sin and his righteousness which clothes all of my nakedness in the judgment of God. Help us, we ask. We need you. Oh how desperately we need you. Some of us, we don't even know how desperately we need you. And some of us feel that need very desperately. Help us. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. So far in 2017, our church has been engaged in the study of the opening chapters of the book of Genesis in a series that we're calling in the beginning and in this series which will conclude in about six more weeks we've been examining the foundations of our faith from the foundations of the Bible every major doctrine of the Christian faith finds its roots in the opening chapters of Genesis the doctrines of God and of creation of Man and of sin, of Christ and of salvation, even the doctrine of the consummation of all things. Every major tenet of the Christian faith is built upon the foundation that is laid out for us in Genesis 1 through 11. And it's for this reason that when I began to think many weeks ago, actually, about what I was going to preach on on this Easter morning, I found myself unable to leave off from the present series. I was praying and I was asking God, how do I preach the resurrection from Genesis? Do I need to go somewhere else for this morning? And the answer just kept coming back, how do you not preach the resurrection from Genesis? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the triumphant climax to the sweeping narrative of human history begun in the opening chapters of Genesis. That sweeping narrative of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no redemption. And there is no consummation. Without the resurrection of Christ, there's just creation, fall, and death, and that's it. There's no hope. There's no life. There's no joy. Genesis 1-11 to is a horrible story apart from the resurrection of Christ. It's a nightmare. There would be no hope. There would be no redemption. There would be no resurre- restoration if there was no resurrection. But in His resurrection, Jesus Christ has indeed triumphed over the deadly effects of the fall. At least that was the way the Apostle Paul, who perhaps better than any other biblical writer, saw so clearly how all that happened in Genesis 1-11 to is summed up in Christ. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 15-17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, so also by a man came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul couldn't understand Genesis 1-3 to apart from the resurrection of Jesus, and neither could we. Without the resurrection of Christ, the serpent wins. Without the resurrection of Christ, death continues its reign of terror over all men. Without the resurrection of Christ, everyone in Adam's fallen race, that is all of us, are doomed to spend an eternity east of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. What has the resurrection of Christ to do with the book of Genesis? Everything. To set the stage for this morning, I want to examine those last two statements of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. For as by a man came death, By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All of human history can be summarized as the tale of two Adams. The first Adam, the climax of God's creation, intimately formed by the hand of God. Adam, whose first breath came from God's own mouth. A covenant partner made in God's own image. God placed this first Adam in a garden paradise and filled it with all good things for him to enjoy. And he set Adam over all creatures which he had made and he formed for him a wife. Bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. With whom Adam would fulfill God's creation command and his creation purpose to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with children who would love and honor and trust and obey and enjoy God with all of their hearts and lives and soul and strength for all of their days. But when tempted by Satan, Adam turned away from glad obedience to his creator and he rejected the forbidden fruit of sovereignty and self-determination. And Adam turned away from the living God and he tried to become a God unto himself. And when Adam fell, all of his unborn descendants, all of us, all of our children, all humanity, fell in him and incurred his sin and his shame and his guilt and his punishment and his judgment and his death. We came underneath his curse, and we've never known anything else. Humanity was cast in Adam, away from the Lord's presence, doomed to spend our days in sin and in misery under the reign of death in the sentence of divine judgment. That's where you and I find ourselves this morning. That is our story apart from Christ. But thank God that's not the end of the story. Because before God cast the man and the woman from his holy presence in Eden, in love and in mercy and in sovereign grace, God gave to him a promise, a gospel of a coming redeemer, one who would be born from the woman's offspring, a second Adam who would crush the head of the serpent, And thereby destroy the works of the devil. This coming redeemer. This second Adam. Would die for Adam's fallen race. Would die for Adam himself. Thereby canceling the debt of sin. Which Adam and all of his descendants owed to the justice and the glory of God. This was the focus of Good Friday. By his righteous representative atoning death. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, atoned for our sin and removed our guilt and took away our sin and our shame. But this was not the end of his saving work. For three days later, the second Adam conquered death through resurrection. And I said last week, when we looked at Genesis chapter 3, that there are really only two real turning points in human history. The fall of the first Adam and the rise of the second Adam. By a man came death, and by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. In Adam all died, and in Christ all shall be made alive. But many, many, many generations have passed between the fall of the first Adam and the coming of the second In those generations, humanity had to learn how to live east of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord, outside of the garden. We had to learn how to live as fallen people in a fallen creation. And that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Though fallen in sin, though cast out of the garden, Adam and Eve were still people of faith. They were still people of the promise. They were still covenant people, gospel people. And we saw this in Adam's naming of his wife after the fall, after the curse. In verse 20 of chapter 3, the man called his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all the living. Before a child was even born to them, before she had even conceived in her womb, Adam believed God's promise that there would come from Eve's offspring a serpent-crushing redeemer. Back in verse 15 of chapter 3, God had given them this promise. Speaking to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise or crush his heel. God promised that Eve... Would bear children, and that one of her children would be this serpent-crushing redeemer. And so, Adam, believing the promise, bestowed on his wife a name fitting of that promise: Kava, Eve, life giver. And when Eve actually conceived and bore a son, she declared that she had done so with the help of the Lord. God has fulfilled his promise. Martin Luther detected in Eve's words an allusion back to Genesis 3.15 as though Eve thought that maybe Cain was the fulfillment of that promise of the serpent crushing seed. That might read a little bit too much into Eve's words, but at the very least, what she says here in verse 1 displays a God-centered worldview that sees children as a work of the Lord. God is beginning to fulfill His promise in me. And so two sons were born to Adam and Eve. Cain was a farmer. He was a worker of the ground. Abel was a shepherd, a keeper of sheep. Both of them are honest, noble professions. Both of them are the outworking of God's command to exercise dominion over all the earth. Cain exercised dominion over the ground by tilling it and sowing it and reaping from it Sustenance, just as God had commanded in Genesis 1.29. Abel exercised dominion over the animals by domesticating livestock for milk and for wool. So there's no external distinction between these two brothers. The difference, as we will see, lies on the inside. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. It's not stated how much time elapsed between Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden and the birth of Cain and Abel. And it's not stated how much time elapsed between the birth of these two sons and the events described here at the beginning of chapter 4. What is clear from the text are two things. Number one, they knew to bring offerings to the Lord. They knew who the Lord was, and they knew that we need to bring offerings to Him. And number two, evidently they knew what kind of offering to bring. Now there's a lot of debate among commentators of Genesis as to why God accepted Abel's offering but rejected Cain's. Was the problem with Cain's offering Or with Cain himself? I'm going to argue both. There was a fatal problem with Cain's offering because there was a fatal problem with Cain's heart. And this becomes evident in the Lord's interaction with Cain. Again in verse 5. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So the Lord confronts Cain with his sin. He knows the secrets, the thoughts and the intentions of Cain's heart. And he, he brings them to the surface and he confronts Cain with them. He says, are you angry with me? Because I rejected your offering? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you bring to me the proper offering, will I not accept it from your hand? If you approach me in the right way, will I not receive you gladly? I'm not against you. But Cain's sin is crouching at your door like a lion, And it desires to devour you. But you must resist it. You must rule over it. And you know the rest of the story. Even if you haven't been in church in years, you know how this story ends. It ends in murder. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me shall kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain... Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What are we to make of this sordid event at the dawn of human history? And furthermore, what is its application to us on this Easter morning so many thousands of years later? Well, in answering that question, we we get a little help from the New Testament and from the inspired author of the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author calls his readers to the life of faith. He calls us, the readers of the book of Hebrews, to follow in the footsteps of the faithful who have gone before Hebrews 11 was written to show us what it means for the righteous to live by faith, which is exactly what the author has called us to do in chapter 10 and verse 36. And so in this chapter, he walks through the Old Testament and he shows how the people of old received their commendation by trusting in the Lord, Hebrews 11.2. He starts with creation. By faith, we, the people of faith, understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Then the very first example of faith which he gives is that of Abel. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, yet he speaks. By faith, Abel offered to God an acceptable sacrifice. So there was a difference in the sacrifices, the offerings. Abel's offering was acceptable, Cain's was not. But Abel offered the acceptable sacrifice through faith through that faithful sacrifice, Abel was accepted by God. He was justified in the sight of God. And immediately, let me pause here and say, that ought to ring a bell. I know it doesn't for many of you, but it ought to ring a bell in your mind, a bell that signifies extreme and eternal relevance and significance to me today. Because there is no greater need that you face this morning than to be accepted in the sight of the living God. I don't. There are many visitors here, and I don't know where you are. I'm glad you're here. And even though I don't know who you are, and I may not know a lot about you, I know the most important thing about you. And I have a word for you with regard to that most important thing. Your greatest need this morning is to be accepted in the sight of the living god and hebrews 11:4 tells us how by showing us how abel was accepted in the sight of his god through his testimony of faith he says abel still speaks to whom to us what does he say what is abel speaking to us Today, this Easter morning, 2017, I think he says two things to us in particular. The first is that we still live east of Eden, and that's why life is so hard. That's why it's storming on an Easter morning when we wanted it to be sunny so we could enjoy the day. We live east of Eden. Even after the coming of the second Adam, even after his serpent crushing death and resurrection, we still live outside the garden of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. Fallen people living in a fallen world. The curse has not yet been lifted from creation. It's not yet been lifted from us. The author of Hebrews wrote nearly 40 years after Christ's death and resurrection, and yet he says that Abel still speaks about the way of faith, which means that we must still walk by faith and not by sight, because we still live east of Eden. And I think this point bears mentioning because many people, and likely some of you, struggle with disillusionment and doubt because your life is so hard. It's so difficult. It's so full of Pain and suffering and trials and temptations and broken promises and broken relationships. And you wonder, secretly, because if you've been in the church for a while, you know better than to say stuff like this out loud. If Jesus has indeed come and crushed the serpent's head then why is there still so much evil and suffering in this world? If the serpent's head is crushed, why is he still biting so many people? And more to the point, if I have embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord, why is my life still so full of pain and disappointment? Why do I spend my existence and, and perform all of my labors, and still all I get from the ground are thorns and thistles? It's a fair question. And an understanding of the biblical timeline will help. When Adam fell, all humanity fell in him, and all creation suffers the effects of the fall. Fall. But God promised to send a Redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, atone for sin, take away the curse, and bring the children of God back into the garden, back into the presence of God. This promise was made increasingly clear to every generation of the faithful down through the ages, but was what was never clear anywhere in the Old Testament was that the coming of this Redeemer would come in two phases. The serpent crusher would come, not once, but twice. And that there would be a necessary and substantial gap between his first coming and his second coming. At his first coming, the Redeemer would be born of the woman in fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15. And at His first coming, the Redeemer would crush the head of the serpent by removing the power of death through His own atoning death and resurrection. This is what the author of Hebrews says to us in Hebrews chapter 2. Look, it up here, look at it up here on the screen. Since therefore the children, that's us, since we share in flesh and blood, He Himself Partook, past tense, we're talking about his first coming. He partook of the same things. He was born of flesh and blood, the God-man. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That sounds like a serpent crushing to me. He might destroy the devil through death. And by his death, his serpent crushing death, he might deliver all those who through fear of death were lifelong or subject to lifelong slavery. So by dying to make atonement for the sins of his people, Jesus destroyed the one who held the power of death over them. He crushed the head of the serpent. So if you are in Christ, Satan has no more dominion over you, no more power over you, no more claim on you, and therefore you need fear death because death is no longer for you the gateway into everlasting punishment, rather it is the gateway back into Eden in the presence of the Lord. And on the third day, Jesus Christ, who was himself crushed to death at the cross, rose again from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. And one day, he's going to come again. There's the second coming of the serpent crusher. And when he comes again, he's coming to finish what he started, to deal the final crushing blow to that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and to deal that final crushing blow to bring judgment upon all of Satan's followers, to lift the curse of sin, and to remake creation into the glorious paradise it was intended to be. Two comings, but why the delay? Why did God design it this way? Well, there's a lot of biblical answers to that question, but only one concerns me this morning. He designed it this way because this age between the two comings of the serpent-crushing Redeemer, the two comings of Christ, this age between Calvary and the return is the age of the ingathering. This is the age in which the triumphant serpent crushing Redeemer, the crucified and risen Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father has sent His Spirit throughout the world to work through this gospel message that I'm preaching to you today and through people like me speaking words like this, He is calling out to fallen sons of Adam and to fallen daughters of Eve and inviting them to come home. To come back to the garden. To come back to God in forgiveness and reconciliation. This is why Abel still speaks. Because we still live east of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord, in a cursed and broken world. Surrounded by all the horrific effects of Adam's sin. And it is time for us to come home to God. But how do we come? This is the other word that Abel speaks to us. The first word he speaks is, come home. You live east of Eden and take it from somebody who has entered back into the presence of the Lord. Come home. The second word he speaks is, but here is how you must come. Because there is a right way and a wrong way to approach the living God while we still live east of Eden. This is, I believe, the main point of Genesis chapter 4 in the account of Cain and Abel. God accepted Abel's offering and accepted Abel. And God rejected Cain's offering and rejected Cain. Why? What's the difference? Both approached the living God. It wasn't that Abel came before God and Cain went before idols. Neither of them came empty-handed, just waltzing up to the presence of the Lord, expecting to be accepted. Both presented offerings from their respective and respectable professions. So what's the difference? What was wrong with Cain's offering? Well, what did he bring? Let's look closely. He brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Verse 3. What had the Lord said about the ground in Genesis chapter 3? He said it was cursed because of Adam's sin. That it would only yield its produce in pain. Verse 17. Through thorns and thistles. Verse 18. By the sweat of your face. Verse 19. In other words, Cain brought before the Lord an offering which cost him great effort something that he had done, something he had sweat for, something that he had pained for, something that he had worked for. He brought before the Lord his own works, his own efforts, his own merit, his own righteousness. Well, what's wrong with that? Doesn't God honor those who work hard? Isn't he pleased with hard work? Not when it comes to justification. Not when it comes to being accepted in the sight of a just and holy God. Not when it comes to the issue of sin and judgment, forgiveness and salvation. In that case, God most definitely and most certainly does not want our works. He does not want our merits. He does not want our righteousness. He does not want our works. Why? Because above all else, God is zealous for his own glory, and he will have none return to the garden who can stand and say, I did this by the sweat of my brow and by the hard labor of my hands. God is zealous for His own glory and He will receive back into His presence only those whom He saves by Himself. When all is said and done, God will be praised for the glory of his grace. And so he designed a salvation that cannot be worked for, that cannot be merited, that cannot be earned, and therefore that cannot be boasted in. So what did Abel bring? He brought a lamb. The firstborn of his flock. And he slaughtered it in sacrifice and presented to the Lord its best portions. And God was pleased. And he accepted Abel's offering. And according to the author of Hebrews, he justified Abel. Now where did Abel get the right idea that the proper way to approach the living God when you're east of Eden is with a sacrifice? The answer is that he learned it from his father, Adam, who learned it from his father, God. After the fall, when the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened, they saw that they were naked and they were afraid and they were ashamed to appear in the presence of the Lord. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness and their shame and they hid among the trees of the garden, Genesis 3, 7 to 10. But the Lord called to them, and He summoned them forth to face His judgment. And in His righteous wrath, God cursed them and cast them from His presence. But before He did, in his, in his mercy, God gave them a promise to hold on to. A promise of a coming Redeemer who would crush the serpent's head and thereby undo all of the evil that they had brought upon themselves and upon all of their offspring. Then God did something extremely significant. Verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3 says, and the Lord God made, the Lord God made for Adam garments of skin, and he clothed them. In their presence, God slaughtered an animal, a lamb, and he clothed His sinful creatures in garments of skin, garments which He had made, garments made through the shedding of blood. He clothed them in garments that cost something its life. The point was loud and clear. Fig leaves cannot cover your sin and your shame. Covering of your own making will never suffice. God was saying to them, My children, I must clothe you. If you would approach me, I must clothe you. Is the same lesson that Jesus, on the night on which he was betrayed, gave to Peter. You remember where Jesus is washing their feet and Peter says, No, Lord, no, Lord, not, not me. Let me do something for you. you. You are up there and I am down here. I want to work for you. And Jesus looks at him dead in the eye and he says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. God says the same thing to Adam and Eve in the garden. Unless I clothe you, you have no part with me. You must let me cover your sin. You must let me cover your shame. You must let me cover you in my grace. And there must be blood. And there must be death. My glory which you have trampled in trying to become like me. It is too valuable a thing to let sin go unpunished. I will not let it appear to all creation as if my glory is worth nothing. There must be blood and there must be death. For the wages of your sin, the price of your rebellion is death. And so he brought about death. He slaughtered a lamb in their presence. Now Adam and Eve, they were smart people. They knew, they figured it out. They knew that an animal was not a fit substitute for man. This was the whole point of that charade at the end of Genesis chapter 2 where God paraded the animals in front of Adam and says, and there was not found a helper suitable for him. They're not suitable to be corresponding to us. And Adam and Eve would have known a lamb, the killing of a lamb not made in the image of God, a soulless creature, a creature who does not possess an immortal soul like I. It's not a fit substitute. And so they connected... The skins, the clothing, the death of verse 21 with the promise of the coming seed in verse 15. And God's gospel was made clear even from the very beginning and they believed it. The gospel of God was this. If you would approach me from east of Eden where we are, you must come the way of grace. You must come the way of faith and you must come with blood. And Abel believed God's word, and that's why he brought a bloody lamb. A lamb which signified the promise of God and pointed to the necessity of divine grace. By bringing this lamb, he's saying, God, I'm a sinner. And I believe your promise of a coming redeemer. And I believe that in the meantime, you've taught us to bring a bloody sacrifice so that we will know that the wages of sin is death. And in faith, he brought this lamb before the Lord and God accepted him and justified him. In faith. Cain did not believe this lesson, which would have been told him as well as Abel, which is why he said, "Ah." Who needs to bring blood? I'm going to bring God that shows him that I'm worth something. I'm going to bring God something that's going to put him in my debt. God's going to see how hard I worked, and he's going to have to bless me. And so he brought the fruit of his own labor. He brought the sweat of his own brow. He brought fig leaves in the sight of God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice and was himself accepted by God. In unbelief, Cain brought his own works, his own merit, that he might manipulate God into blessing him and put God in his debt. And the unbelief and the unrighteousness of Cain's heart is revealed as the story progresses. He becomes angry with God because God accepted Abel's offering and rejected his own. That's not fair. My offering is just as good as my brother's. In fact, it's better. I worked harder. I sweat, and I toiled, and I tilled, and I sowed, and I reaped, and I gathered, and all he did was sit around some livestock. Even after being warned by God that sin was crouching at his door, waiting to devour him, that he must master it, Cain gives in to the depravity of his own heart, and he lures his brother into his field, and he rises up and he murders him. And thus from the very beginning, the children of God and the children of the devil became obvious. For those who live east of Eden, that is for all of us after the fall, there is one and only one way to approach a holy God. And it is not the way of merit and it is not the way of works and it is not the way of effort and it is not the way of self-righteousness. Some of you are here today, you work really hard at this Christianity thing. I've seen you. You work really hard at it. You read your Bible assiduously, you pray diligently, you come to church and church functions constantly, you grit your teeth all the way throughout this this Christian life, and you strive after Christian morality, and yet you have no assurance that you're actually accepted in God's sight. Could it be, could it be that from the time you started attending church with your parents as little children, that you've been trying to cover up your sin with the fig leaves of a Christian practice and a Christian morality? Could it be that you are Cain? Cain? And could it be that on the day you find that God has accepted the offering of someone who's far less Christian than you are, you too will fly into some murderous rage and call the justice of God into question. Beloved, the only way for sinners to be accepted in the sight of a just and holy God and have any degree of assurance that they are accepted is to come by grace, through faith, with blood. Namely, the blood of God's Lamb, who is Jesus. This Easter morning, the voice of Abel cries out to you. What does he cry? And I've prayed that you've had you would have ears to hear. The voice of Abel cries out to you, and he says, Come home to God. Come back to Eden. You needn't perish in the wilderness. But you mustn't come the way of merit, and you mustn't come the way of effort, and you mustn't come the way of works. You must come the way of grace. You must come empty-handed. The only thing you have is faith in a crucified and risen Messiah, a slaughtered Lamb of God, and a risen and reigning King. Do you hear His voice today? He still speaks. The second Adam has come. He has crushed the serpent's head. He has destroyed death by death. He has overcome sin through suffering. He has bought you with blood. And he has conquered the grave in order to give you life. And it is free. It is gloriously and graciously free. In fact, if you try to pay God back, you don't have it. You haven't gotten it. You can come home to God. You can come back to the garden. Listen to the word of the gospel for you this morning. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, that's you, you're the many who died. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace by the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. That can be you as well. For if by the one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift, the gift, the free gift of righteousness, much more will they reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There is abundance of grace for you, sinners. God is overflowing with mercy. I don't know what you've heard about him. But he is overflowing with mercy. And he is not willing that any should perish. And it is free. That's why Christ came. To purchase redemption so that you could receive it freely by faith. There is a free gift of righteousness. There is a spotless Robe of righteousness to cover all of the nakedness and shame of your sin. If you are in your right mind, you are afraid to appear before the Holy God, just like Adam and Eve were before the fall, or after the fall. And the fig leaves with which you've tried to cover yourself are of no avail. But God offers you this morning garments of his own making, garments made through the shedding of blood. He offers to clothe your nakedness, your shame, your unrighteousness with the brilliant, white, clean robe of Christ's righteousness. And all you've got to do is receive it. All you've got to do is show up at the gate this morning, empty handed and say, nothing, nothing, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, and death will no longer reign over you, but you will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So this Easter morning, come home to God. Come back to Eden, but come back the way of grace. Empty-handed, no merit, no self-effort, no self-righteousness, no works, nothing to bring, nothing with which to put God in your debt. And come the way of faith. Trusting only in the serpent-crushing Redeemer who died for your iniquity and rose again and offers to clothe you with His righteousness. And come the way of blood. Believing that Christ died to pay the wages of your sin. Come home to God. You can My Father, I pray this Easter morning that you would grant ears to hear the cry of Abel calling to sinners here in this congregation, saying, Come home, come home. And I pray that you would grant ears to hear the cry of Abel saying, But come by grace. Come in faith. Come with blood, the blood of the Lamb. If I have spoken to you this morning, and you've heard the voice of Abel through the gospel message crying to you, and you know that you're still east of Eden, You know that you're still separated from God. You have no assurance. I don't care if you've been coming to church your whole life or this is the first time you've ever wandered through these doors. Don't you want to be accepted in God's sight? Don't you want to fulfill the purpose for which you were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Don't you want everlasting joy in the presence of your Creator? I'm going to pray. If you want that, I'm going to invite you to join with me. Bow your heart before the living Christ who's seated at the right hand of the Father. And make these words your words as you cry these up to Him. Call upon the name of the Lord with me. Lord Jesus, I want to come home. I want to be clean. I want to be forgiven. I want to be accepted. I don't want to be naked and ashamed anymore. I don't want to live in the midst of the filth that infests my heart and corrupts my life. I want to be known and loved by you. I want to be clothed with your righteousness. I want to be pardoned by the Father on the basis of your death for me. I want to come home. You cry that out to God. And then you go home this afternoon and you read Luke 15 and here's what you will find. You will find a Father standing upon the portals of heaven. Peering out into the distance. Looking for any sinners who want to come home. And you will find a father. Who girds up his garments. And sets off running to embrace you. In his arms. To put the ring of sonship upon your finger. And to throw the robe of his righteousness over your shoulders. Come home to God.